It's Wednesday, August 20th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. One writes sci-fi novels. The other was a war reenactor. A third calls himself the demon. They are the leaders, former leaders, deposed leaders, and recently vacated leaders of the Ukrainian rebellion. There was a story on these guys and on the turnover in leadership on the front page of the New York Times. Plenty of room at the top of Ukraine's fading rebellion. But in Google News, when you came across this story, for some reason, the visual attached to it was a picture of the cast of Friends. I think it was because Kiev Today was writing about something with... I have no idea why. It has to do with Kiev Today and this article. But... There it was, right next to this sentence. In the Luhansk region, Valery Bolotov, a Russian citizen, announced last week he had temporarily resigned as prime minister and left for Russia for medical treatments. Right next to that was a picture of Chummy, Ross, Rachel, Phoebe, Chandler, Joey, and whoever the hell else was on Friends. Which got me to thinking, what if the Ukrainian rebellion was run by the cast of Friends? It might go something like this. Oh my God, you guys, did you hear? Commander Strelkov said in a news conference that they had killed mercenaries of the Negroid race. Ross, can you get any more off message? And that ends another episode of Gripping Premise, Little Follow Through, International Conflict Zone Theater. Join us next week when the International Court for War Crimes in Serbia meets Night Court. You won't want to miss what Bull the Bailiff has to say about Radovan Karadzic's hair. On the show today, we're coming up on a Lebowski fest, so I'm going to talk to a guy who wrote a book about being there all through the making of The Big Lebowski. And in the spiel, I take on the varmints clogging up Times Square. But first, ISIS and the terrible beheading of an American, what it means. The entire world is appalled by the murder of journalist Jim Foley, said President Obama today. He was speaking of the horrible and provocative act by ISIS, the Sunni terrorist group operating in Iraq, Syria, near Turkey. The president went on to say, Jim was taken from us in an act of violence that shocks the conscience of the entire world. And that, I think, is the point. Joining me now is Professor Bruce Hoffman, who uh, studies terrorism and insurgency. He's the director of the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. Hello, Bruce. Hi. ISIS, what they did today was that they killed an American, or what they did yesterday, and we found out about it, and that is the first attack on America. But do we know if they have a doctrine desiring to export jihad like al-Qaeda did? I would say there's no doubt. I would say I would describe them, in fact, as the Uber Al Qaeda. That they believe that they are the truest, uh, purest, uh, most faithful adherent to Al Qaeda's original guiding ideology, which also maintain that Islam was in perennial war with the West in general, the United States in particular, and that this was a constant struggle. And they believe that they're, you know, very faithfully adhering to it before these recent events, they had not exported their 
jihad to the shores of America. They're certainly very powerful. They've knocked over all these banks in Iraq. They're the richest terrorism group I think the world has ever seen. Yeah. They have hundreds of uh, adherents with European and American passports. We should be very afraid. But do they have the same kind of doctrine where it's pretty much at the core of their mission to attack Americans? Or are they just using this to scare us, to advance their goals within the theater where they are now, in the area they're there? operating in right now? Unfortunately, it's both. Yeah. I think in their doctrine and in their narrative, they see the United States in particular and the West in general as this predictably interventionist force that is constantly intervening in Muslim lands and propping up governments or regimes that are inimical to the interpretation of Islam as advanced by ISIS. So they see the United States as the enemy. That said, of course, they've been very preoccupied in recent months, firstly in their internecine struggle with al-Qaeda and their uh, dispute with uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda, and also in battling other rival militia and insurgent groups in Syria. And certainly America's intervention to protect minorities, the Yazidis and the Christians, to protect our embassies in Erbil and Baghdad has played into their narrative, that they say the United States always will intervene and this is one reason why we have to wage war against them. Do you think that right now, obviously, they're planning attacks, uh, they're planning their strategy, they are an army, they're planning their strategy all, all over Iraq, if that includes attacking American bases or American forces or anything that happens to be in their way, they will. Do you think that they're planning activities to blow up a bomb in Kansas City to take down, you know, the Gateway Arch in St. Louis, stuff like that? I'm, well, I'm sure they daydream about mm-hmm. any number of attacks that they really would love to perpetrate in the United States, whether they have the ability to do so, I think, is at the moment, again, somewhat doubtful. However, I mean, you raise an important point. The fact that the person they chose to deliver the message to the United States yes. after the beheading of Mr. Foley was someone with a British accent is precisely choreographed or calculated to communicate a message that, you know, your enemies aren't only people that are different, you know, you think are different from you. They're people who speak your language, who have familiar access, and indeed possess the passports that are members of the visa waiver program that conceivably could enter the United States. I mean, this was a message that was calculated to intimidate. Do you think the United States Authority knows all the Americans or almost all the Americans, passport-holding Americans who are there fighting with ISIS right now? No, because I think one of the problems are is that it's not just people fighting with ISIS. For instance, Munar Abu Sela, the American uh, citizen from Florida who engaged in a suicide attack in Syria, not for ISIS, but for, for another uh, al-Qaeda-affiliated group, is someone who originally went to the Middle East and his family thought that he was undertaking humanitarian work in Jordan. Yeah. then turned up as a terrorist. And I think this is the problem, is that we focus on the fighters, quite rightly, and we have to. But we shouldn't lose sight of that there's lots of other people in the region that potentially go there under false assumptions, saying that they're engaged in humanitarian work and they're not, or are themselves radicalized. So the, the problem is one that I think is certainly emerged, but it's not necessarily something that we have a great understanding of. Mike Rogers, chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, says that right now the U.S. is in greater danger than before 9-11. Now, 9-11, thousands died. Two great buildings were torn down. The Pentagon was attacked. It was horribly successful, horribly unprecedented. I can't quite imagine that we're in as much danger, but maybe I'm not as informed as he or seeing it the right way. 
I would just in, insert one word, potentially in as much danger. Okay. I mean, certainly ISIS has the same cold-blooded intentions that al-Qaeda has. I think the difference is al-Qaeda spent years planning precisely this one operation that was the centerpiece of virtually everything they were doing at the time. The attention of ISIS is fortunately more distracted. So there's two ways to look at this. One is to say that this moment represents when to most Americans or Americans who maybe haven't been paying that much attention that ISIS seems the most potent, the most dangerous, the scariest. The other way to look at it is over the last few months, maybe ISIS is at its weakest. They've, you know, the bombing strikes have worked to some extent. That dam in Mosul, they no longer control. So how do you look at ISIS? Unfortunately, I think everything that's going on now is just one skirmish in a long war. As you pointed out at the beginning, the immense largesse that they have, I mean, money talks. I mean, this is how you can recruit, pay fighters, uh, suborn and bribe adherents, also portray themselves as being not just terrorists, but also having the capacity to govern and provide uh, public goods and services to a population. And this makes them, I think, very dangerous and means that they're not a flash in the pan, unfortunately. Bruce Hoffman is director of the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown. Thank you, Bruce. My pleasure. Alex Belf is an eclectic guy. He's the impresario behind Bronx Banter, which is a New York culture site. He runs the Stacks, which archives works of journalism. And he's out now with a Kindle single. And this gets at maybe the roots of his eclectic nature. It's called The Dude Abides, The Cohen Brothers, and The Making of the Big Lebowski. Alex was there in the middle of it all as a Cohen Brothers assistant, or the Cohen Brothers assistant. Hello, Alex. Hey, man. How you doing? I'm well. So did they tell you what the project was? How'd they describe it? They just said that they were going to be working on a movie, and you know, if I could find a place to stay in California, I was welcome to come out with them. I mean, they really came from you know, a frugal mindset from independent filmmaking, so they weren't going like they, they were going to fly me out there but you know i had to find a place to live i had to rent my own car if i could do that i was welcome to come along and then once i was able to do that they said here's the script and i so i read the big lebowski you know like the first day i was on the job with them yeah and did you get it yeah i absolutely got it. oh man i thought it was great it was actually one of the great movie experiences i had which was funny because like i said i wasn't a coen brothers fan really when i went to work for them but the first thing it reminded me of was the long goodbye uh the robert altman movie which sort of like flips the whole Chandler thing and puts it in, you know, hippy-dippy 70s uh, with uh, Elliot Gould as as Marlowe. And, and, and that's what the dude reminded me of. He reminded me very much of that kind of laid-back Philip Marlowe thing. And I, I thought it was great. Right. So you have a list of guys that blow your mind if they would have been the big Lebowski. Raymond Burr while well, he was dead. Fred Gwynn while well, he was dead. But how about the living one? They even considered Jerry Falwell. Gore Vidal, William F. Buckley, Larry Hagman, Andy Griffith. Talk about playing against type. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the Schwarzkopf and the Norman Mailer, I think that was just sort of like just throwing wild things out there. I don't think they were seriously considering the guys. But, you know, guys like Pat Hingle or Charles Durning. Yeah. Or, you know, there are so many guys. I think for them, the, the, the deal with Lebowski was that he had to be a really Anglo, waspy, Pasadena guy. Being from New York, I didn't really know what that meant, but it could have been like a Greenwich, Connecticut guy. Yeah. So they, you know, maybe even Gene Hackman could have played it, but, you know, uh, Brando was really the guy that they, that was their their pie-in-the-sky dream, which would have really flipped it on its ear. 
Yeah. So how'd they hire Bridges? Was it more them courting him or him courting them? No, they courted him and they were actually going to shoot Lebowski before they shot Fargo. After they did Hudsucker Proxy, they were going to do Lebowski because they had written the role of Walter specifically for John Goodman. But Goodman's schedule wouldn't allow for it. He was doing Roseanne. He couldn't get away from it at the time. And I think they had already approached Bridges, but he was doing um, Wild Bill. Mm -hmm. But they really wanted him to do it. And I guess Bridges is pretty famous for not taking parts or at least hemming and hawing about it. And as Cohen described it to me, they said when they first approached him, they said, you, you know, he said, I, I don't really get it, you know, and they sort of were a little sheepish about it. And they were like, yeah, you know, it's just kind of like you, Jeff, you know, he's a California guy. And so I think they really saw it as being a natural form. And I think he had to like sort of feel his way into it. But once he arrived at the conception that this was a very laid back dude who is thrust into these very uncomfortable situations for him, the comic conceit of the movie, uh, you know, Bridges and the Coen's agreed on that and then from then on he was just that guy what do you think bridges brought to the dude that wasn't on the page and maybe even that the cohen brothers hadn't thought of before bridges brought it i mean some of the look clearly you know i mean he brought some of his wardrobe in like the clear jellies or the barrette in his hair or the sarahara o shirt but beyond that it was just the readings that he did and you know Joel and Ethan have this kind of like, yeah, you know, kind of creaky way of talking. And it sort of is infectious. You know, people who work around them for a long time, they all kind of talk like this. And what I noticed is that after a while, Bridges, without imitating them, you know, that happens in Woody Allen movies where yeah. protagonists end up doing their Woody. Yeah. You know, whether I, it's Mia Farrow or Kenneth Branagh yeah. or anyone. And sometimes it's real, like John Cusack. It's really painful. Broad, yeah. Well, it, it wasn't quite that, but. You know, Bridges would have these kind of creaky voice cracky things sometimes like, <laughs> oh, man, you know, and that was in, in a way him kind of channeling Joel and Ethan. But uh, I think what he brought to it was just a tremendous natural ease. I mean, when he did Last Picture Show, Pauline Kael said he's like the most natural American actor. And I think that watching him in dailies do different takes, he was really tremendous because what he would just do is sort of give a variation from take to take, oh, the dude sounds slightly cranky. The yeah. dude says, it's up here, it's down there, here's a gesture here. Yeah. You know, so he was basically the guy, yeah. and then he just gave them all this different material that's the to thing. choose from. And, and that's, that's so awesome if an actor can do that, and if the editors, who are the directors and who are the writers in this case, I mean, when you get all those choices, then you could bring as much craftsmanship to that part of the process as you did to the writing and the directing. It's a great gift to give your director, editor, producer guy. That's right. And, you know, Bridges being a really a film actor, I think he really understood that. You know, you're just giving these guys all the raw material. That pop but also, there's just... The, the Coens sort of fostered this really cool nature on their set. So anyone from, like, the production designers to the actors, they felt like there was a real structure there, but they also had room to play. And also, you know... Joel and Ethan are not going to sit there and do 50 takes of a scene to get it perfect. Right. The most important thing for them is their artistic freedom. So that's staying on budget, staying on schedule. So if Bridges wanted to do an extra take, yeah, they would allow them that. They weren't insane to get, like, the perfect take. What insight did you glean from their dynamic and how they worked? Well, it was kind of weird because, you know, I have a brother who's a couple of years younger, vir virtually the same age difference, and I couldn't imagine working with him without a lot of... Uh, Tension. Yeah, yeah, tension, fighting, whatever it was. Those guys would just go in the back room and you'd hear them typing and then they'd, they'd laugh and then maybe they were sleeping for a little while and then they'd <laughs> laugh again. But it's not like one of them worked on it at home and they brought in a scene and then they built on it. No, they were just like really even keeled 
and they had that weird almost telepathy that siblings can have where they sort of knew what they were saying without necessarily being I mean there was a lot of silences with those guys they liked talking it wasn't like they were reclu- you know like uh, remote or anything but they were very comfortable being quiet so there was something super brainy and super midwestern about them and of uh, some of the other cast members or did you have any interactions or get any insight into Julianne Moore or um, John Goodman or Buscemi or Totoro? Well, Goodman was uh, doing Roseanne at the time, and I, he seemed to be kind of a tortured guy. You know, I didn't get a chance to know him really that well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was making incredible amounts of money every week on that show, and he just seemed to be, like, in a different world. Buscemi was, like, the most down-to-earth, nice, decent guy. The kind of guy who would go out of his way to make a PA feel like a, yeah. a, a peer. The kind know. of guy who was a firefighter from Valley Stream, which is what he was. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, he was a really sweet guy. And Bridges was, you know, I didn't, again, I didn't really get to know him all that well, but he was like a super friendly guy. And, the, and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman was in that cast in a small role. Yeah, I only met him a couple of times and he seemed pretty sullen, you yeah. know? I mean, he just seemed, and I don't know if sullen's really, just self-involved, which yeah. is like what actors are. So, right. you know, you did, I didn't, you know, Totoro is the same way. So I didn't think any less of them, but they weren't necessarily approachable in the same way. And just like it will forever be baffling that Shanana played at Woodstock, there is Tara Reid in The Big Lebowski. She had a pretty big role. Yeah, man. She had the, <laughs> one of the key roles because, you know, the, the scene with her by the pool. The toe it, scene. The toe scene. That, yeah. that was what the actresses read when they were trying out for that part. And I remember Heather Graham coming in one uh-huh. day. And this is before Boogie Nights came out. Oh, yeah. But I remember her from Drugstore Cowboy. And she yeah. was so fetching. You know, she walked in. And I remember actually going into the uh, Joel and Ethan's office after, right after she had read. And they were actually red in the face. I mean, she, like, <laughs> blew the socks off of the, that scene. And so I thought, there's no way that she's not getting this. And then Tara Reid got the part. And I remember thinking that was really puzzling. Yeah. But then it reminded me that, you know, those guys were looking for casting as something really specific. And Tara Reid did look like a trashy Midwestern girl That's who right. had run away. You know, and Heather Graham sort of had more of a too, California girl. Yeah, she's almost too pretty, you know. And, you know, Tara Reid looks like... You know, not wholesome at all. In exactly. Her, yeah. exactly. And I also read, uh, I think I read this month that Jenny Lewis of Rilo Kylie read for that yeah, role. Yeah, I heard that too. But you yeah. didn't see, she, she wasn't. I mean, she might have been. I wouldn't have known who she was. But I didn't know who Vince Vaughn or Owen Wilson or Paul Rudd were at the time and they too. Came and in? those guys came in. Oh, wow. Amazing. For Brant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things that you write about in the book is how Buscemi was awesome. But since a lot of his shtick wasn't exactly central to the part, you know, it was never in the movie. And have we ever seen any of that? Any of his takes in uh, out? takes or anything like that? No, because I don't think Joel and Ethan are the kinds of guys that really care to I put think, any of that I think stuff. it was Blood Simple is the only director's well, cut re- that's shorter than the actual released cut. Well, that's- they redid that and they recut that right after Lebowski and it yeah. was right after the Star Wars. Lucas had redone the Star Wars and I remember I kind of busted their chops about it. But basically, I think that they had had a, a couple of things that always nagged them about Blood Simple that they were able to go back in and kind of cut. But to, to your point with Buscemi, he had such a small role, and there was not really much for him to do. Yeah. But there was a lot Donnie. Of, he played Donnie. Donnie, yeah. right. But there was a lot of physical things that he did in the background of scenes, like when uh, Goodman pulls out the gun on Smokey. There's, you know, some wide shots where Buscemi sort of starts off at one part of the frame and just sort of creeps, so, like, off to the other side of the frame with the gun out. And it was beautiful in the sort of if it was just one shot yeah. but they couldn't cut it around Donnie because Donnie was really secondary to the scene so 
there was just a lot of nice little, yeah. almost like silent comedian, Buster Keaton kind of stuff that he was doing that got lost, but there was no way for them to keep it, you know? What do you think made this not just a success, but a cult classic? Because a cult classic isn't just that it's good, it's that it, there are things to hold on to. Right, there's something particular about it, because after all, it wasn't a success when it came out. I mean, yeah. it wasn't a flop. But no one really went to see it. It wasn't a big deal. And I don't think people got it. It was such a hodgepodge of things. But it's one of those movies that I think got better as you saw it more often because it was really quotable. They're really, like, Isn't that what makes most cult movies really great is that you want to quote the dialogue? Right. And in this case, I think it's just really this, the subject of the movie. It's got this convoluted plot, but that doesn't really matter. It's really about guys hanging out with other guys. It's like the company of men. It really is... An, a bromance, really, of, of Walter and Donnie. It's this dysfunctional marriage between these two guys. And is the reason you wanted to do this, I mean, it's a great story, but I have also got to imagine that when someone finds something about you, maybe they'll talk Bronx, maybe they'll talk about your interests. But as soon as you say, actually, I was a PA on The Big Lebowski, that's it, all conversation is going there. When he was a kid, uh, Harpo Marx used to do this face called the Gookie, which was, uh, he used to go to the cigar shop uh, on the Upper East Side, where they grew up, and there was a guy who used to roll cigars there. His name was Gookie, and he would do—he would imitate this guy. And when they were on vaudeville, uh, if they were ever flopping, they would just have Harpo go up and do the Gookie. And so <laughs> Lebowski is sort of my version of the Gookie. Like I can bring it up to people, and there—I I, was—I always sort of been taken aback. So many people say this is my favorite movie of yeah. all time. Well, Alex Belt's next Kindle single is Troop Beverly Hills, The Making of. No, it is not. <laughs> Alex, Alex Belt is the author of The Dude Abides, The Coen Brothers, and The Making of The Big Lebowski. He knows he was there. Thank you, Alex. Hey, thanks, man. And now the spiel. The mice have overtaken Times Square. Well, these particular mice are named Mickey and Minnie and possibly even Mighty. They're a group of costumed characters who hit tourists up for tips. The NYPD is distributing flyers telling tourists they don't have to tip. So a spate of unauthorized Elmos and bargain basement Buzz Lightyears object. The characters have formed an association. They call themselves Association of Artists United for a Smile. Lucia Gomez spoke for the encephalitic mice. And these are hardworking individuals that wear these outfits in all kinds of weather. Um, they bring smiles to New York. They bring smiles to the country, to the world. Okay, they work hard. Their suits are sweaty. They get paid less than minimum wage. Why does any of this argue for allowing them to continue? Do they bring smiles? Some smiles, sure. But what's the net smile? Do they generate a positive smile-to-scowl ratio? I think not. And it's not just the confused children who see one SpongeBob too many or who say, Mommy, Cookie Monster's eyes are googly, but not in a fun way. No, there's actual felonious behavior among our furry friends. Gia Storm of the Times Square Alliance details why you're right to get the heebie-jeebies from a fuzzy-wuzzy who gets scuzzy. The incidents of bad behavior have unfortunately increased as well. So we're seeing everything from groping to harassing of tourists to some violent behavior. Here are just some incidents. A Spider-Man punches a cop. Another Spider-Man fights a woman over a photo. A cookie monster accused of shoving a toddler. A Super Mario gropes a pedestrian. Now, this is a problem. A cookie monster? No, 
There is only one Cookie Monster. He is the Cookie Monster. Same with Super Mario. Same with Spider-Man. There is one Spider-Man, and if he is seen in Times Square, it's fighting Electro and possibly a weak script. But that's what the Spider-Man does. This is what a sub-Spider-Man does. 22-year-old Musa Rabui, dressed in a Spider-Man costume like this one, allegedly grabbed a woman's breasts and backside after putting his arms around her. She flagged down police, and he is charged with misdemeanor forcible touching. So when you have an Elmo, and that particular Elmo is reported to have spewed anti-Semitic obscenities, Henson, we have a problem. We do not need renegade Muppets wandering around the crossroads of the world, quoting extensively from the protocols of the elders of Snuffleupagus. The reason that there is a Mickey Mouse, and it's not Mickey Mice or Mickey Mouses, as the local news would have you believe, the reason that there is the Mickey Mouse, not a Mickey Mouse, is because Walt Disney is a trademark hard-ass. Disney lawyers are always issuing cease-and-desist orders to, say, nursery schools in Nebraska that have a mural of Goofy on the wall. We should use that instinct. The companies who own these characters need to protect their copyrights. The solution to this play of plush perverts. It's not to illegalize them per se. It's not to establish Spider-Man free zones. Oh, wouldn't the Green Goblin just love that? It's for New York to work with private business, businesses that are often headquartered here to enforce their copyrights, to go to the overly amorous Ellos and Hello Kitties from Hell and say, no, you are abusing our characters. You are giving us a bad name. You know, at their theme parks, Disney goes to extraordinary lengths not to allow visitors to glimpse the humans inside the cartoon costumes. But listen to this story. This was told to the New Yorker by a New York City councilman, Andy King. He said, my granddaughter was down there in Times Square and a strawberry shortcake took a picture with another girl and her dad. And when the father didn't give a big enough tip, strawberry shortcake ripped off her head, ripped her own head off and started cursing at the family. So my five-year-old comes back and starts saying, how does someone take off their own head? Wouldn't a simple admonition not to be a strawberry cheapskate have better served the character? The problem is that this was not the strawberry shortcake. This was a strawberry shortcake. Come on, Hasbro. Come on, Disney. Come on, Marvel. Get out there with your teams of lawyers who harass people who don't deserve harassment and put an end to these characters. It's easy to pick on benign users of your trademarks, but when a sleazy Spider-Man is putting his webs where they don't belong, you turn tan. Look, I know I am supposed to feel sorry for the mostly immigrant workers who are inside these costumes, but you know, that's about 130 people. They complain about terrible working conditions and sub-minimum wage jobs. I believe them. They'd be better off working at, I don't know, a Chinese restaurant or a bodega or in a factory or anywhere else, anywhere where they don't block traffic, harass parents, occasionally break the law and violate copyrights. I feel sorry for the 130 workers. I don't see why they couldn't get jobs elsewhere. These aren't even good jobs. Let's clear Times Square. It's time to shed your secret identity, Spider-Man. It's time to crawl back up into your pipe, Mario, to dry up SpongeBob, to rethink your regrettable life choices and possibly go back to school for an associate's degree, Mickey Mouse. Sorry, that one wasn't really like a character-based pun. But seriously, get the hell out of Times Square. It needs to be swept clean of these costumed creepies and returned to the kebab peddlers and naked cowboys of yore.
And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, can sometimes be found begging for tips dressed as Snagglepuss next to an off-ramp on the Major Deegan. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, often dons a Captain Caveman outfit and asks tourists to put some shekels in the pouch outside the La Brea tar pits. You can listen to us in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. Right now, I think we're number three in iTunes. Number one, Men in Blazers. Love that podcast. EPL Soccer's just started. Got to listen to Men in Blazers. Now, number two is a podcast with only one episode, and it calls itself Episode Zero. And again, I'm just going to state the rule. If you have only one episode, you're not a podcast. You're an annual report in audio form. Get another episode, and then we'll talk number two podcast. But we, the gist, we're on Yo! To find us, sign up for podcast. And as soon as our podcast is up, we'll yo you. And you yo us. Yo! For a similar experience... You can sign up for the daily newsletter. It hits your inbox the moment the show is live. Go to slate.com slash gist email. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. M-I-C. See, I almost made it through an entire show without singing. K-E-Y. Why? Because I'm self-indulgent. M-O-U. Actually, let's end with you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.